Welcome to Next Normal, the podcast that is reimagining capitalism and exploring the ways that money can do so much more than just make more money. Here is your host, the co-founder of the Global Impact Investing Network, Ahmed Buri. Thanks for joining us on this newest episode of Next Normal, the podcast aiming to uncover pathways towards the next normal in our global financial system. Calls for reimagined capitalism have gotten even more visible since our last episode about a month ago. No matter where you live in the world, you may have seen messages from the Reset Capitalism campaign run by Imperative 21. In the pages of major newspapers like the New York Times, on the tickers of global stock exchanges, and across every social media platform. This movement is growing, and the COVID crisis is elevating this discussion in powerful ways. For episode four, I'm excited to have one of the most thoughtful voices in the center of this worldwide conversation, Mike Kobzanski. Mike is the CEO of the Omidyar Network, a social change venture that is investing to build more inclusive and equitable societies. I'm sure many of you know Omidyar, at least the name, if not the organization. It was established by Pierre Omidyar, the founder of eBay, and his wife, Pam. I've worked with the Omidyar Network over the years as they have been a strategic partner to the Global Impact Investing Network since it was its earliest days. And I've had the pleasure of knowing Mike for even longer, for over a decade. Uh, we first worked together when he was doing some fascinating work looking at how to scale high-impact companies in India. Over the years, we've been fellow travelers on the journey to shape a better system, and our work has connected in a variety of ways. Under Mike's leadership, the Omidyar Network is now focusing on the upstream ideas and systems that govern our economy and the technology that impacts every corner of our lives. Welcome to our podcast, Mike. Thanks, Am. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, and I must start by saying, um, how are you holding up during these volatile times? Uh, well, at the big picture, I'm employed uh, and I have my health. And so uh, within that context, uh, I feel extraordinarily grateful. So many Americans and people around the world can't say one or the other. Uh, and so uh, that's a very fortunate position to be in. Uh, and I also feel fortunate to be able to work in an organization where we can be part of uh, addressing the solution to these incredibly challenging times that we find ourselves living in. I hear you absolutely. And, and I think if, if anything, this, um, you know, these multiple crises we're contending with do remind us of the importance of gratitude um, and also the vast inequities that we see in the world around us. Um, you know, I want to dive right in with a, a big uh, question, um, you know, talking about you know, how you see the, the, the basic problem with capitalism. Um, now, Omidyar Network plays an important role in this conversation. Um, it sees itself as a voice from Silicon Valley. In other words, an, an insider um, in capitalism uh, calling for structural change. So how do you see the basic problem of capitalism as, as it exists today? Yeah, and I think the reference as insider is a, is, a, is a good place to start because we are fundamentally capitalists who do want to reimagine capitalism. We've put over seven, three quarters of, in our history, we put over three quarters of a million dollars to work as VC investments in the impact investing space. We've been long proponents of what markets can do to address uh, important uh, considerations around poverty, around environment, around other issues that people have been working on for a very long time. And so we come at this with a, with a, a humble and deep belief in markets and what they can do. And we, of course, come from, you know, Pierre and Pam started eBay, which was fundamentally about markets and what well-governed, well-regulated markets can do and the opportunities they can provide. So that Silicon Valley 
origin is our DNA in terms of how we look at it. Uh, and very, very importantly, we've had the pleasure and the fortune to invest in both successful businesses and unsuccessful businesses that have tried to make a go of it within that context. And as you mentioned, Ahmed, I looked at over a thousand businesses across India and Africa that were aiming to both provide some sort of social good and earn a profit. And so we come at this with a deep heritage and understanding and, and admiration for what markets can and should be doing. But when you take a step back and you know pull the aperture back to what's going on in our broader society, you know we did a strategy reset in 2018 uh, for the in, for the first time since 2007. And obviously, since 2007, a lot's changed, right? That there was no iPhone. Facebook was like a kind of an idea. Um, there was yet to be even the Great Recession uh, in 2007. So. When you reset the strategy at a time like that, you take a step back, you see a lot has changed about, about the world and a lot has changed about the economy. We just know more about the economy. And so you see an economy where GDP growth in the uh, period post-1980 actually is underperforming what it was in the period in the 30 years pre-1980. If you look then across, as everybody started paying attention to this summer after the George Floyd murder, the racial wealth gap in this country is getting worse, not better. White households have 10 times the wealth of black households, and that hasn't moved since the signal civil rights, civil rights legislation of the 1960s. So when you pull the aperture back, what you see is an economy that's not working on its own terms, right? When we've been told by uh, the existing uh Reagan era paradigm that it is all about GDP growth, which we disagree with. But even on those terms, the economy is, at least in the US, not delivering on its promise, not delivering broad-based growth, leaving large swaths of people out. You see the record levels of inequality that just keep growing. Uh, and inequality is a driver, frankly, of other terrible things uh, in our society, uh, including a predictor of how you get to authoritarian, uh, how you get to authoritarian um, you know, political economy. And so that looked very dangerous to us to not then uh, to ignore that. We, you, once you see that, you can't unsee that level of um, structural uh, rot in the economy. And so that was the origin of our taking a look to say, there must be something, there must be something else going on here at the kind of upstream level that is, despite the individual success stories moving the tidal forces of the economy in the wrong direction. Uh, and a good example of this will be a, a company you probably know, Amit, from our portfolio, where we were happy, we were ecstatic to be early investors in a company called D-Light. They, provided, uh, they started out providing solar home lanterns uh, in Africa and India, and they, um, uh, and they moved into providing solar home systems uh, for the um, you know, for households that weren't just lanterns. Um, they've done phenomenally well. We've had, uh, they've grown, they've served, you know, 100 million people as of, you know, as of last year. They've, um, we've had a lovely exit, very successful investment on every social metric and on every financial metric for us. And yet, look at the climate change problem that's happening, right? That, that individual effort is heroic. That team is doing unbelievable work, and yet the tidal forces of our economy are moving in the wrong direction. And, and that story can be told in different segments of the economy, whether it's around 
poverty, economic opportunity, job dislocation, individual heroic efforts are being swamped out by broader tidal systems. And so that's why we felt like you really need to look at the upstream systems that and the rules of the game. It's actually quite parallel to the journey that the Jin's been on. Um, you know, the, the organization was founded in 2009, um, coming out of the last financial crisis. Um, and I, I think there's a, a time um, and a sense at that time of great potential for progress, you know, learning lessons about the system we had in place and able to kind of move forward and shape a better system. Uh, and about around the same time that you were looking at your strategy in, in 2018, we were also doing a refresh of the Jin strategy and, and also came to a similar realization. Um, despite all the progress and success of the impact investing community, um, when we zoom out and think about the bigger picture, um, issues like inequality had gotten worse in many parts of the world. Um, you know, climate change had you know gotten worse, or at least had not gotten made enough progress. And so we found ourselves, you know, asking this very fundamental question of what does success look like in a failing system? Um, and that really marked a pivot in our strategy, which leads us to have this conversation here today of an interest in the gin and the impact investing community to see ourselves not just as moving more capital to high impact companies like those ones that you were um, you know, researching in India and, and across sub-Saharan Africa. But how do we do that in a way that actually shapes a better system overall, you know, a system that's more inclusive and, and more sustainable uh, and more equitable? Uh, which is a tall order, um, but that's why we're here to, together today, of course. Yeah, and at the risk of sounding sycophantic, um, you know that, as you know, I mean, we quoted you when we reset our strategy. Uh, that journey that the gin is taking uh, is, we think, an essential step uh, that all of us must take um, to think about impact investing in a in a broader capitalism system that's failing is not enough, right? And so. Um, you know, I think it's going to be, and that's why I'm so excited to talk to you and your audience today, because I think the community that the gin works with of investors and people who are have enormous power to change things. Yes, we absolutely need to change rules, laws, mindsets, and beliefs, but investors have enormous power, unlike almost any other segment of the economy, to also drive this change themselves. Well, and, and that's um, you know such an interesting thing about the, the moment we're in now, where um, you know when I was a kid, you'd hear activists talking about the, the ills of capitalism and how we need to change the system. Today, um, we have organizations like the Omidyar Network and the Gin. Um, we have impact investors who are very mission-driven um, you know, investors, but we also have titans of of industry. Um, we have you know, leaders in finance, leaders in technology, um, the World Economic Forum, the Business Roundtable, um, you know, many um, you know, kind of institutions that are in the establishment and, and you know, hold immense power um, are you know, at least recognizing a need to change. Um, what I think is interesting and why this podcast is called The Next Normal is, um, you know, I'm very curious in, in populating that vision of what we're changing towards and, and what, what the end game is. Um, and I'd love to um, get your take on that. Um, you know, can you paint the picture of, of capitalism's potential? You know, like what would it look like in its idealized form? Yes. So I think we have started to articulate that. Uh, and, and we do that as um, from a place of humility because we are a philanthropy and an investor. So we're but one voice in it. But as a philanthropy, we feel we have an obligation to be transparent about what it is we're trying to get done in the world. So we don't offer a point of view on what capitalism should look like because we think we're the only voice in the room or we should even be the predominant voice in the room. We do that as to lay down a, a marker, as it were, as one hopefully thoughtful investor and philanthropy thinks about and to be clear to 
our partners and people who may disagree with us about what it is the vision we want to see. So our we just released, um, I guess it's now last month, our uh, what we call our point of view and our call to action to reimagine capitalism. And that can be found on our website at omidyar.com. But uh, in brief, we lay out a vision that's not about specific policies, but sort of about what we call five pillars for the economy. And so that vision, first of all, I think, again, when you take the step back and you look at the aperture, take a different aperture on, on the economy, right? There's a tendency, we all get taught, you know, we went to the same business school, right? <laughs> we all get taught, you know, and our business school professors were trained at UChicago. <laughs> you all get taught, like, the economy is this naturally occurring thing, and, you know, it's forces of, you know, it's tidal forces, and we want to treat it like physics or biology, that these th- these are forces that are just independent and, uh, and, and neutral and just naturally happening. And when you take a step back, you realize, no, economies are structured. They are function. They are functions of political, they call it political economy for a reason. Economies are deeply framed by power, by um, the character of the governments and the governance and the democracies in which they operate. Uh, and they are framed by people with interests um, and, uh, and, and accordingly. So I think the first thing when you think about the economy is just being honest with ourselves that these are not sort of laws of nature, a la Darwin or Newton. Uh, these are actually created, built structures that can be recreated and rebuilt in different ways. And the most important connection of all is that between our economy and our democracy. So it's good that we're having this conversation in election season. Um, because these elections have meaningful consequences for our economy. And so you, the nature of who's participating in the economy and the nature of who has power in the economy um, fundamentally shapes how the economy gets structured uh, in the democracy and what are the feedback loops between economy and democracy and vice versa. And I'd love to come back to that. But to just say, so taking that step back, I think we can say, we, we call out for sort of an economy that a lot of people are going to be working on this. Um, and so, but we have a call that the economy needs to have five, a new economy, a new economic settlement needs to address five pillars of an economy. The first is around values, right? Which is to say, we've been told forever that it's all about individual freedom and keeping government out of markets. Um, and by the way, we do that quite selectively as those of us who lived through 2008 know. The government made an enormous foray into markets to bail out the banks. Um, and so even that is a, um, is a honored, you know, often only in the breach. But we've anchored on this value of freedom from government, freedom from interference and that sort of thing. And the rest of the rest of people's understanding of the economy flows from there. What we're saying is that the economy needs to be grounded in a new, more expansive set of values. People are complicated. They don't just have one value, right? They, if you read Jonathan Haidt, they operate on five or six different kind of moral, moral uh, compass readings, right? There's a So there's a set of values that we think are equally important that need to get folded into any new economy. Dignity, economic security, the freedom to engage in the economy, and the freedom to engage in our democracy are equally important pillars as the freedom from government interference. We shouldn't give up on individual freedom and private property and and these things that some of those early values suggest. Those should be a part of the equation, of course, but we've overbalanced in one direction. And this is the problem with the economy is we've continually overcompensated for just one value, for just one dictum in the economy, 
And as we know, as impact investors know, as your listeners know, right, impact investing is actually about holding multiple values true at the same time. So this will not be revolutionary for your audience. They get this. Um, but for the rest of capital markets, it still sounds a little bit revolutionary, but it comes down to values because until you underscore the values, until you change the values and a different set of values, every other policy, idea, debate, discussion flows from an implicit set of values that people are holding. And so if you can't make other values just as important as the freedom from value, then we're in trouble, right? And we need to have a much more expansive view of the economy. I'd say second, and very importantly, we need just not, not just uh, an inclusive economy, but you know, it needs to be built on anti-racist grounds, right? There has been systematic racism that has shown up in the economy in every different kind of way, whether who got included in the National Labor Relations Act, uh, under redlining, back to the original sin of slavery um, and you know, unpaid labor. Uh, and so there's a set of repair that needs to be done to not just build the economy in a way that's inclusive, but it actually takes into account um, the, uh, the dreadful sort of racially unequal past of how the economy has, has come down. There'll be different proposals for how to do that, and we're not coming out for one or the other. But unless we address that, the rest of, we can't actually have a, a truly equitable uh, economy, and we're leaving opportunities and growth for large segments on the on the table. Otherwise, I think our third pillar is what we talk about is a need to rebalance the relationship between government, markets, and communities. And so, um, right now, we've you know again in the guided by the freedom from value, we've let. We've been even said, well, you know, we've got these massive monopolies and we're unwilling to regulate them, right? Um, and so, you know, we're just going to keep the government out of markets, even though in, I think, 16 of 20 industrial sectors in America now, concentration is up over the last 20 years. That's bad for competition. It's bad for economic dynamism. It's bad for job opportunities and growth. It also requires, as the pandemic has shown, rethinking the safety net. That is in the in the country, right? So again, in, in an effort to keep the government out of things, there's no safety net for when you have to shut down the economy for large chunks at a time, and small businesses have to lay off workers instead of being able to keep going. I think a fourth area is very important. We think that again, as the you know, we've prioritized shareholders at every turn in the economy, and we, there need to be counterweights to economic power in both our democracy and in our society. And so, this is an area where we talk a lot about worker power. Uh, the economy, the, the middle class grew very strongly when there was, frankly, more worker power in the economy. It's good for workers. They are able to bargain uh, for better terms. They don't need an act of Congress to get PPE to go back on the job. Um, and society gets better outcomes at the aggregate level when workers have more power uh, in the system. And I think finally and importantly, we're laboring under a set of economic ideas that were constructed in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and maybe the 70s. As I pointed out, just since 2007, a lot has changed, right? We live in a world with pandemics, global climate crisis, and the incredible march of technology, even in the last decade. Our economic understanding has not been, our economic settlement, our, our, our general economic theories have not been updated to take any of this stuff into account. We still um, privatize the gains and socialize the losses of you know, natural resource use. Uh, and there's a... Um, a whole set of things, for instance, good example here is around artificial intelligence. A lot of hand-wringing, appropriately so, about what artificial intelligence is going to do to jobs. 
And we take artificial intelligence destroying good middle skill jobs as a given, but it's only a given if you prioritize the interest of shareholders and no one else's interests. Uh, and imagine a world if workers had seats on boards um, and they could also have a say in terms of how AI rolls out in the workplace. There would still be AI, but it would roll out quite differently and in a way where workers could share in the gains of those productivity increases instead of the entire balance of those productivity increases going back to shareholders. So these pillars intersect, obviously, but we would say until you address each of these pillars and modernize our economic understanding for the realities, and by the way, not just the technology realities, but we just know so much more scientifically from biology, psychology, evolutionary economics, a bunch of other disciplines. We just know so much more about how the economy works. And that hasn't been factored into any of our paradigm of, of the economy. Well, I, I think it's um, you know, such an expansive and comprehensive you know, vision of you know, the different forces and pillars that would shape a new economic system. Um, and I really appreciate also the, the way that you highlight just the, this fundamental dynamics of power. You know, power between you know the private sector and government, power between workers and companies, you know, power between um, marginalized communities um, and ethnic minorities relative to you know, kind of you know, majority power, um, and and I think that's a really interesting thread when we think about how do we want to shift the power dynamics. Um, now, when we first connected, as, as we mentioned, and we first worked together, um, you were doing you know, some incredible research um, that I think was quite pathbreaking at the time of a, a very comprehensive study looking at actual companies, uh, many of whom had, who had received capital from impact investors. Um, and you were unpacking the models and the ways in which those companies were run and how they operated. When you think about this vision, um, you know, and of you know what the you'd like the economic system to look like, um, you know, what would companies look like in that environment? Um, and and you've talked about companies as complex entities um, who can actually hold multiple values and can um, support multiple stakeholders um, at the same time. Um, so, can you talk a little bit about what that would look like in practice? Companies under a, a new capitalism should, of course, make a profit. That is um, because companies who don't make a profit don't stick around to, <laughs> to do business. But I think it's worth thinking about the, the I think it's worth thinking about um, both what the companies are doing and how, the, and how they're operating, what they look like. And so the, you know, it, as they're making their profit, how are they operating? What's their relationship to the rest of society? And what's their relationship to the rest of their shareholders? So I would say, Start at the top because the governance of these companies really matters, right? And there's been a bunch of pieces last month around the anniversary of Friedman's uh, article. Uh, Raghuram Rajan, for instance, wrote an interesting piece about um, that companies should be really thinking about a full range of long-term stakeholders, not just the equity holders, who of course are long-term stakeholders, but they're taking into account, they're also working with uh, long-term debt holders and frankly, long-term employees who have a long stake. And obviously the longest term interest uh, in a company is the community in which the community works, right? And so one, uh, companies that are successful would be those that adhere to that vision, right? That take into account multiple long multiple long-term stakeholders and not just short-term not just short-term interests and not just and and the the only the long-term stakeholders shouldn't only be the long-term equity holders i think secondly companies as uh leo strine and colin meyer have kind of proposed uh would 
for instance, be public benefit by default, right? Uh, and so right now you can opt into being public benefit, but the shareholders have to sign off. And these companies would sign up for public benefit. Being a public benefit company is already an option, um, but you have to affirmatively sign into it. They've proposed changing the, the mix to that by default. You show up and you have to opt out of that. Like that would have an enormous effect uh, as well. And I think would change, would change the mix. Third is I think companies would take into account more is what we talked about worker power, right? So how do you work on a model? Uh, you know, Senator Warren proposed the Accountable Capitalism Act, which would put workers on boards, right? And so these companies would take into account, you know, one way to achieve what Raghuram Rajan talked about would be to have workers participating in boards and governance. Rebecca Henderson has also, uh, in her book recently, uh, offered some suggestions on this. Um, and the fourth is the companies would have would be working in capital markets that would have more um, sort of full cost accounting, as it were, or as uh, Sir Ronnie Cohen talks about, sort of impact impact transparency, um, so that the companies and their stakeholders, their workers, their customers, right, could really see what their actual uh, impact is in terms of the planet, in terms of their work policy, in terms of their water consumption, uh, and those sorts of things. And so, um, uh, but finally, I think also there's a bunch of other things which we'd love to see companies be doing, which is continuing to innovate. And so I think companies that are well-structured, if you get this right, will be plowing more into R&D, into talent development, into skilling, into the things that actually generate productive uh, innovation for the economy. Again, coming from Silicon Valley, we think about innovation and product you know, uh, all the time. You know, the importance of when there are profits, you know, thinking about that mix of profits Right now, those profits often, too often, just go back in shareholder buybacks because that's what the corporate governance structure implies. And so I think we'd see those companies shifting the balance of, yes, they've got to take care of their shareholders, but also shifting the balance of uh, investment into R&D, into new product development, into things that are productive in the real economy. Um, and that would be an important that would be an important way in which these companies um could operate and with with better governance, we think, uh, and better norms and better rules, uh, we think that could be a you know we think that could be a meaningful spur to growth uh, and innovation. It's great, and I really appreciate how you've translated um, some of those high level kind of goals and uh, and the vision for a new economic system into some of the concrete moves that um, that can be made. Um, and and also, I think one of the things that I'm you know so excited about is that we have great ideas out there. Um, you know, there, there's big, it's hard to get your head around. How do you shift an entire system? Um, but there's a lot of great work being done you know, throughout our, our collective networks um, of you know, people thinking about very tactical things that would help shift power um, in the system more broadly. You know, one thing that um, you know I'm is very top of mind for me. Um, you know, just understandably, given the moment that we're in in the world, um, you know, is that of course the coronavirus pandemic. Um, you know, which is you know you know having a, I think a compounding set of crises. It's of course a public health crisis first and foremost. Uh, it spurred an economic and financial crisis. Uh, I think it is highlighted. Um, you know, something that is not new but very um, present. You know, um, you know at, at this moment around a crisis around. Race racial justice. 
Um, and I also think it is, um, you know, underscoring a, a crisis in confidence and trust in the system. Um, and, and I'm sure there's other ways we could think about this, but that, that's a lot of um, you know, compounding um, you know, crises to really contend with. Um, how do you think the coronavirus pandemic has you know, had an impact on the path towards changing our economic system? I think you make an excellent point in terms of the undermining of trust more generally, right? Because at one of our pillars is rebalancing the balance between government markets and economy. To do that, there needs to be trust in government, right? And I do think that is a setback for those of us who would like to see a more affirmative role for government in helping to address the economy and helping to address the crisis. And so I think that is one of the most problematic, uh, about a thousand problematic <laughs> outcomes of the of the coronavirus crisis. But one of the things that I think is good is the ascension, the the attention, excuse me, to essential workers. Right, which is a segment of the economy that's predominantly black and brown, not covered typically by the National Labor Relations Act, has very little worker power, often immigrant, uh, as well as as well as gig economy workers. Right, the you know there's a lot of attention to gig economy before the crisis, and I think the crisis and the attention to essential workers, low wage people, who are the people keeping the economy going, putting their li- putting their lives in harm's way so that we can go to the grocery store, so that we can get deliveries, so that we can, that everyone can do. I think it's put into stark relief some of the inequality in the economy, some of the precarity in the economy, and some of the heroism of people who are just everyday postal workers and cashiers in supermarkets and people in jobs that are otherwise forgotten. Well, I want to um, you know, just dive a little bit deeper on this point you raised around kind of you know, workers. Um, it's something that resonates very powerfully with me um, and kind of the dignity and fragility that we see that many kind of you know, regular folks are facing that's been exposed um, by this pandemic. Um, it certainly is something that um, you know, strikes a chord with me personally. Um, as I think you know, I was you know, um, you know, a, a child of immigrants, uh, you know, raised by a single mom, uh, and we were very low income for a significant part of my early childhood, uh, and then worked our way into the middle class. And that kind of stability um, allowed me to pursue um, you know, an, an incredible array of educational opportunities and, um, and a lot of mobility, um, which is what you know, I'd like to see for everyone, of course. And, and I think that one of the things that we're um, you know, seeing as a result of this pandemic is um, just the difficulty in, in, you know, in the structural inequality, um, the lack of mobility, um, and the importance of actually building in kind of you know, the values um, for workers um, and how we actually um, value that into the structures of our economy. Um, you know, one thing I'd love to get your take on before we move to the lightning round is, is also just, you know, what do you think regular people can do to help drive progress on these bigger issues? Um, you know, we, we, of course, know that the, those folks with power have a lot of responsibility that they need to you know, really you know, put to work towards shaping a better system. Um, but what do you think is the role of the workers themselves um, and you know, of ordinary folks who um, you know, want a system that you know, provides a better future for their children? What's the role that they can play? So for workers, we'd love to see, and we have seen increased level of kind of organizing to create voice. So National Domestic Workers Alliance, fantastic group. We're proud to support. Um, Ijen would be a fabulous guest for you at some point. The uh, they built a platform called Alia, which allows domestic workers 
to get together to both claim benefits, but as a way for them to get together and express voice. Uh, and, um, you know, and domestic work, for instance, is a tough place because, you know, if you're a domestic worker, you're working in seven, eight households, potentially in a week or a day. Uh, and so it's hard to get benefits per se out of the system. But if there are new ways to aggregate their voice, their um, presence, um, then the, all sorts of new things come possible and some new tech like the Alia platform or WorkIt's uh, uh, United for Respect has built a group called, has built an app called WorkIt, which is a similar kind of thing where workers can get together to articulate voice, understand policies and come together in new ways that don't require being on a factory floor. So we're really excited to support these kinds of efforts that provide new ways that workers can get together and um, uh, demand better working conditions uh, and get into dialogue with workers, even if it's not not a traditional union, uh, which is becoming tougher and tougher per the Supreme Court. So I think that's a you know, there's a bunch of ways in which workers can and are starting to come together in new ways that are not traditional ways, but are actually quite important and organizing online and organizing together. Um, uh, and that's going to be essential uh, for, you know, um, funders can't, uh, you know, funders can't organize, workers should be organizing themselves and they are, and we're proud to be supporting a number of groups who are doing that. So, and I'd say, secondly, I think there's a role for broader consumers. And one of the things that struck me in the election is how many people confuse the stock market with the economy. Um, and so I think there's work to be done to kind of understand what exactly is the economy. Very, actually, less than a majority of Americans have exposure to the stock market, even through their 401ks and that sort of thing. But for those who do, for instance, I think there's a, a set of ways in which they could be more demanding of the stock of the you know, of their kind of intermediaries who are managing their stock, whether it's their mutual fund or ultimately their investors upstream. Um, we'd love to see more individual activism around, hey, I've got this pension fund. What are you investing in? Does that invest according to my values? Right. And there's a, you know, so is there a, uh, you know, there's a new group that we're supporting, for instance, called the shareholder commons, right, which is really trying to work with universal investors um, to, you know, take this broader view on what uh, on what investors should be doing to move companies towards a more holistic view of the economy. That will move better if there is um, interest uh, and inquiry from their from the consumers who own either directly or indirectly some share of those you know of those assets and of those companies. Whether it's workers in you know who are pension fund holders, if you're a teacher's pension fund, if you're just through your corporate four hundred one k. You know, have something, and I think there's, I think there's room for individuals to put pressure on corporate governance through that lens, the same way they do through their uh, consumer activism in terms of who they'll shop and whether they'll shop in Patagonia or North Face or just you know, uh, you know, retailer X. Uh, and so I think there's this. I'd love to see more pressure and demand coming from everyday shareholders individually in the economy, if they're going to care about the stock market, um, that's great, but then let's care about all aspects of the stock market. Um, and so that I think could be an important additional point to kind of continue to, you know, we have a number of investors 
um, and asset holders and institutional asset holders who are going down the right track. But more demand from the ultimate individual owner at the end of the day would turbocharge that and move that in the right direction. One of the things that I, I think has been quite um, encouraging about um, you know, the response to this pandemic is that we, we actually have seen a lot more interest from mainstream institutions, I mean, pension funds and others, you know, who uh, are huge investors but represent the capital that's actually um, you know, on behalf of ordinary folks you know, who are workers in, in any number of industries. Um, there's a much growing, um, a greater interest in how they can put their money to work to have a positive impact on social and environmental issues. And, and I think that that's an, a leading indicator of a bigger trend that we'll see uh, as people start to connect the, you know, their um, vision for the world they want to live in and the world they want to have for the children uh, to what their money's doing. Um, and recognize that there is a fundamental relationship about um, that power, um, even if it needs to be aggregated and, you know, and, and you know, through pools of capital like pension funds, uh, that can be quite um, important in towards driving progress. And I'd say we'd have one, one other add-on, which is to just say, and then if you get these sort of larger investors committed, there, need, they need to, there needs to be some holding of them to account. So if they're going to go make brave statements, you know, there needs to be some more, and groups like, just capital increasingly are are doing this, and that's a really essential piece of the of the equation as well. So, because it's been as we've seen with Black Lives Matter, right? It's been very easy for companies to come out and say we're for Black Lives Matter and that sort of thing. And then sometimes they are actually like Ben and Jerry's; they're doing amazing work. Other companies, they said it, and if you actually unpack some of their actions and where what things they support through the chamber and other uh, other activities, are completely counter to actually what. You know, if you actually did support Black Lives Matter, you would be doing. And so I think there's an important final piece of that loop, which is to which is to, you know, keep, uh, you know, keep the spotlight on people to um, honor their promises. Well, that also resonates with us. Is no surprise there, but um, you know, one of the things that we've emphasized, um, you know, in the impact investing community is the importance of of measurement. You have understanding the right metrics that you can have a um, a demonstrable impact on you know any range of issues, um, including things like you know gender equity, um, quality employment. Uh, you know, uh, you know, agriculture, where a lot of you know people work, of course, and and other sectors. Um, and I think one of the things that's important about this moment, we talked about the crisis of trust, uh, is that you know there's you know countless pledges and promises and platitudes, um, but people are really going to expect real results, um, and that's an important role for um, you know the impact investing community, I think, to help share some of the discipline that's been developed over the years about how investors and companies can actually you know, measure their performance along things other than financial returns uh, and also communicate that to stakeholders, um, you know, for, you know, and my hope is that that will help rebuild the trust that we so sorely need. Um, you know, I'll move to our lightning round. It's almost time for us to close, unfortunately, and, and this has been a great conversation. Um, but I have a few questions for you uh, that I'd love to get your quick takes on um, you know, as we close out this important discussion. Um, so as you think about the future of capitalism, you know, which country do you have your eye on? Well, the U.S., of course, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is uh, and, and not just because it's home base for us uh, or because it's the largest economy in the world. But because the rest of the world looks to the U.S. for the rest of the world looks to the U.S., right? The U.S. de facto writes the rules that then the IMF takes to other countries, right? So the U.S. Is, has unusual kind of outsized uh, influence in terms of how to do it. Um, so 
first and foremost, the U.S. because not just it doesn't matter just here, but it matters in uh, it matters all over the world, and particularly in a world where China is offering an alternative model of how to how to run an economy. Um, places that I think have done well, uh, for instance, I really admire how Germany handled the pandemic uh, and the safety net. You know, the German economy didn't throw people off the didn't throw people off the employment roles. They paid businesses to keep people on their employment roles. And every piece of economic evidence suggests it's much easier to restart the economy that way. And yes, it requires a different relationship of the state to markets, but it's to everyone's benefit. It's to the companies, to the small businesses benefit. It's to the employees benefit. And the economy restarts faster when you do that. And so I think we could take a page, for instance, from Germany you know, or Denmark or some of these countries that really have safety nets that are modernized and updated for times like this to um, to really be able to cope with a with a shock like this uh, and get restarted faster. And you lay out a big vision for what a new economic system could look like. Um, you know, what is the earliest that your vision could might take hold? Economics. It took uh, it took forty years in the wilderness for Milton Friedman and Friedrich Hayek to uh, convince Margaret Thatcher and then Ronald Reagan that this was the right economic prescription for uh, for their countries. So we know this is a long-term game, and that's important. Philanthropy should be taking the long-term. Philanthropy should be taking the long-term view. That being said, I think we are in a much better position now than we were in, say, 2008. In 2008, it was manifest that the system had collapsed um, and the old economic paradigm wasn't working, but nobody had a real alternative to propose. And now you see from new thinkers, whether it's Heather Boucher at Washington Center for Equitable Growth or the Roosevelt Institute or Derek Hamilton at Kerwin Institute, there are starting to be real, uh, real new, real new ferment in terms of what's a, what's a, what's a better economic paradigm. And so these, in the past, our analysis is crises have led to change. Uh, we are living through an enormous crisis right now. Uh, and so our hope would be that certainly by a decade from now, we're living in something much more akin to the economy we described. But we're under no illusions that that uh, is easy, that that would happen. There are many pathways where it could, uh, it could go completely the wrong way. And again, as we opened, a lot of this just depends on how our democracy fares, too. Because if our democracy is not healthy, our economy can't be healthy and vice versa. Last question, as if you could recommend that we interview only one more person on this topic, who would it be? I would talk to Ai-jen Poo, um, who has a worker's eye view of the economy from some of the most marginalized workers um, and some of the most um, you know, least noted participants in the economy, immigrants, whether documented or undocumented, uh, who are working at this, these seams of the economy that are simply not covered by you know, modern labor law. And she has this remarkable ability to then ladder up to a, to ladder up to a more kind of structural view. Well, this has been great. Uh, and of course, we will continue this conversation outside the podcast, Mike. But I do want to thank you for taking the time for being with us here today. Um, I really appreciate so many things about what you said. I mean, it was an incredibly broad ranging uh, conversation. But I think the importance of um, you know, of power, 
um, and of rebalancing power in so many different respects, whether it's between workers and, and companies, whether it's between you know, the government, um, the general public and the private sector, uh, and also you know, between different groups within our, um, our economy and our society. Um, I, I think this is an incredibly powerful time. Um, I do hope it is you know, um, ripe for incredible progress. Uh, and I really appreciate the work that you and the Omidyar Network are doing to help us realize that promise uh, and get a bit closer to that vision. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us. Uh, an absolute pleasure. And I really appreciate all the work that the GIN is doing with its constituencies as well in the, in the same direction. Uh, to our listeners, thank you. Please share this podcast and your thoughts about Mike's vision for a next normal on social media. And also be sure to follow me on Twitter at Amit K. Bori and on LinkedIn. We'll be continuing the conversation on these various platforms. We are intent on making Next Normal a must-listen resource that connects you to some of the freshest voices and the most respected thinkers on this topic. Money can do so much more than just make more money. And with your help, we're eager to help show the world how. Until next time, this has been the Next Normal Podcast. Take care and stay safe.